Amen. It is so good to be here this morning, and uh, man, it's great to have people from Texas and Kentucky and maybe other places too here today. So it is so great to be able to worship this morning as we anticipate the coming King. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. You can click there on your phone, or if you've got one of our Bibles, it's page 287. Over the past few weeks, we have been studying the promises of God. And basically what we've been doing over the past few weeks in this promise, the Promise Keeper series is painting a portrait of Christ. As we've taken a look at each one of these Old Testament prophets or prophecies of the Messiah, it's like each one of those promises is, is another stroke in the painting. And so the first promise we looked at was from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and it revealed that the Messiah would would come from the seed of the woman and would one day crush Satan, defeating all evil forever. The second promise we looked at was given to Abraham, and it revealed that the Messiah would come from a nation that would be produced out of his offspring, out of his seed, and he would be a blessing to all nations. And then last week, the, the promise that we talked about was that the Messiah would be a prophet like Moses, that he would be a man who performed many signs and wonders with great power, and he would make predictions that would always come true. And we talked about one of the most important predictions he made is that he would return. And so we anticipate that. Uh, really, Advent is a season that we look back at the faithfulness of God and we, uh, we, we celebrate his coming his first coming, his birth, but we also look forward to his second coming also. And so today, the promise that we're going to look at is a promise that was given to King David. And it's through this promise God reveals that the Messiah would be a king forever. It would be an everlasting kingdom. I think as Christians, we, we often struggle with that idea. We, we struggle relating to God as a king because we, we're not under a king here in the United States. And so that idea, I think, is foreign to us. And often I think what we do here in the United States is we talk about God's kingdom and we think of God's kingdom as something that's coming in the future. But the reality is that the king has already come and his kingdom is here, not in all of its glory yet, but he has already come. And so don't make no mistake about it, Jesus is on the throne now. He's the fulfillment of this prophecy that we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and that has real-life implications for us today. And so we're going to talk about that. Let's pray, and we're going to dig into chapter 7. Father, I know we often we look at what you've done for us and the promises that you've made and we're thankful that you've sent a Savior. We look to you as a consultant for, for wisdom, but we struggle making you Lord and submitting fully to you as our King. And I pray that through your word that your Spirit would change our hearts that we might be a people who submit to you fully, radically, 
joyfully. And that we would leave here with a deeper, fuller understanding of who you are. For your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the context of 2 Samuel chapter 7 is that the Israelites have been, uh, for some time now, in the promised land. But after a season in the promised land, they said, look, God, we want a king. We look at all the other nations around the world, and we see that they have kings ruling over them. We want a king also. And so the first king of Israel was this guy by the name of Saul. He was a terrible king, awful. Then God raised up another king. His name would be David. He would be a man after God's own heart. David, like Jesus, was a a shepherd protecting his flock. He would be a great poet, a musician. He wrote most of the Psalms. He was also a warrior. At a very young age, he defeats Goliath. And, And think about that moment. What does David do in that moment when he defeats Goliath? Like Christ, David put himself in in the position of of putting his life on the line for God's people. He represented all of Israel in that moment as he fought Goliath. He won the victory for all of God's people in that moment. And so that way, he's a Christ figure. And by this point of 2 Samuel 7, David has won many victories as a warrior. He's moved the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, into the the tabernacle in Jerusalem, which was a big deal for them as a people. It was a a central location for worship. And so now Israel is experiencing a season of peace. And David was actually given wood, uh, cedar, to build his own palace. And so things are going well for David at this time. And so he looks at this giant palace that has been built for him, his house, And then he compares it to the the tabernacle, which is God's dwelling, which at that time was a tent. And he says, this is not right. I've got this huge palace, and God's living in a tent. That just doesn't seem right. And so that's where we pick up in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. Verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house, and remember, it's a big palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, I don't think Nathan the prophet had really gone to God and thought about, okay, what are the ramifications of this? He, he hadn't sought God's advice and he hadn't conferred with God. He just told David what he thought made sense. Yeah, go, do what's on your On your heart here, Dave, go and build God a a temple if that's what you want to do. But verse 4, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moved about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So you start to see God's character here, right? God is saying that, look, as long as my people are sojourners, I'm going to be a sojourner. As long as they're living in tents, I'm going to live in a tent. It's more important for me to be with my people than me to have a fancy place to, to dwell. 
Verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be my prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares, listen to this, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Do you see what's going on there? He's saying, look, look, you want to build me a house? No, 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 no. I'm going to build you a house. This is so significant. You got to understand this. In Middle Eastern culture back then, it was normal for a king to want to build their small g God a huge, marvelous temple so that that God would bless them, so that they could manipulate that God into giving them something. And so God is saying to David, no, I am not like these other gods. You can't buy my love. I am the giver. I am the promise keeper, not you. Every other religion, think about, think about this. Every other religion says you need to do something good for God so that he'll do something good for you. Christianity is completely opposite, completely different. God, the God of the Bible says it's all about grace. It's not about you earning my blessing, God says. It's about you trusting in my faithfulness. It's about you trusting in my promises. And so he's saying to David that, look, if, you, if I let you build me a house, you're going to be teaching all the Israelites like, that I'm just like the other gods, all the other gods. See, David thought he could do God a favor. But God says, no, no. He, he's saying, look, look if, listen carefully, if what you do for God becomes more important to you than God's promises of grace to you, your effectiveness to represent his kingdom is ruined. Let me say that again. If what you do for God becomes more significant in your heart and in your mind, it can become an idol to you. And what happens is that in that moment, if you put what you do for God ahead of what he's done for you, what the grace and the promises that he's made to you, you're not going to be able to represent his kingdom because that's not what his kingdom is all about. His kingdom is about him, is about his grace towards us. God's not looking for you to be some awesome minister or, or do some awesome things for him. He's looking for you to trust his faithfulness and trust his promises and rely, learn to be completely dependent on his provision. That's the Christian life. And so let's take a deeper look at the, the promise God makes to David. Pick up with me in, in verse 12. So when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, so in other words, when David, when you die, I will raise up your offspring, literally seed, after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, in other words, when he commits sin, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be, in, be established forever. So what's, David, or what's God talking about here? When, when David spoke of building a house for God, he was talking about a physical house. He literally wanted to build him a temple. When God said, look, I want to build you a house, David, he's talking about a much bigger promise there. He, David didn't need a, a physical house at this point, right? He had, a, he had a palace that was already built for him. He was talking about an eternal kingdom that would come through his offspring, through his line. And, and notice that nothing will get in the way of God fulfilling this promise. Not death, not sin, not even time. Nothing will get in the way of God fulfilling this promise. He said, look, after you die, David, I'm going to raise up your offspring, literally your seed. And that's what he does. Okay, God would have a son named Solomon. And Solomon would be raised up as the next king. And Solomon would fulfill this promise about building a temple for God's name. He would become Israel's most powerful and wise king. He would amass a, a huge amount of wealth. But he would also do things like build temples to other gods. He wrote the Song of Solomon to, to his wife, a beautiful poem to a, a, a one single wife. But then he would have multiple wives on top of that. There came a point to, in his life where he looked at all, of, all, of he, all that he did and he said, look, it's like trying to catch the wind. It, life is meaningless. But through all of that, through the highs and the lows of Solomon, God kept his promise and continually pursued Solomon, he, he, through his grace and through his discipline, he drew Solomon back to him. And at the end of Solomon's life, he, he would eventually be restored, just as God had promised David. And, and it's obvious, though, that the promise was not just about David's son Solomon here. There, there's something bigger going on here, because he talks about a throne that would last forever and ever. It would be an eternal throne. So God is saying to David that, from your seed, from your offspring, from your line, eventually my kingdom will be established. David, I, I've raised you up and I, I've given you a significant role in bringing about my kingdom. That's what he's telling David. This is huge because this is really the story of the whole Bible if you think about it. The whole Bible is the story of God's kingdom being established. From the very beginning in Genesis when God creates Adam and Eve, in his image, for his glory. What does he tell them? He says, look, go and be fruitful and multiply. In, in other words, spread my glory every, everywhere in what? And, and we're, if you're taking notes, this is where you can, uh, I, I want you to focus on this because this is amazing. This is, again, this is one of those threads that we see throughout Scripture, God's kingdom. He tells them to exercise, he says to Adam and Eve, exercise dominion over the earth. In other words, be my representative, be my princess. But for Adam and Eve, that wasn't enough. They, they didn't want to be 
a representative of the king. They wanted to be a, a, the king themselves. And so they reject God as their king. They said, look, I think I can do it better than you can, God. And if you think about it, all of us do that in some way, shape, or form. We all say, God, I know better than you. I don't want you as my king. I want to be my own king. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we, we haven't reflected him. We haven't represented him as king like we ought to. And so right from the very beginning, though, God, in his grace, has Genesis 3.15, right? We, we looked at that, the promise given. And then the promise given to Abraham that his seed would become a great name and great nations would be, uh, his, his nation would be a blessing to all nations. And then we read in Genesis 17, 6, Abraham is promised by God, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. And listen, and kings shall come from you. So that was the plan from the very beginning, this kingdom. When Jacob was blessed, or when Jacob blesses his sons before he dies, he, he looks at Judah and he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the people. And so a scepter was a long ornamental, ornamental staff that represented royalty. And so you see this, this thread throughout Genesis and throughout the Old Testament. You, you see Moses singing and David singing of God's everlasting reign and his throne. And even after David dies and the kingdom of Israel, it, it's split They're thrown into exile, and it seems like all hope is lost, that there is no way that there's going to be a king that rises out of Israel. What are the prophets saying? Uh, Isaiah in chapter 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth. And forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so even when there seemed to be no hope, God continually whispered, a king is coming. A king is coming. And so 600 years after that prophecy of Isaiah... An angel comes to Mary in the first chapter of Luke and says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And so... That angel is saying that that prophecy way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is being fulfilled in your child, Mary. When Jesus preached, how did he start? He, he proclaimed the kingdom of God is at hand. His parables often taught about the, the coming kingdom. The kingdom of God is like, he would of, often say. And the people who heard him teach were blown away. Why? Because of his authority. The way that he taught was with such authority. It affirmed his kingship. And the miracles that he performed, again, affirmed, authenticated his kingship. When he was crucified, what did they do? Well, even before. Before he was crucified, as he went into Jerusalem, how did he go into Jerusalem? 
riding on a donkey, and the people were praising him, putting palm branches down like a king. When they crucified, they put a crown of thorns on his head, and above his head they, they said, the king of the Jews. And so it's obvious that he is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Paul calls him the king of kings and the Lord of lords, which is, if you look in Revelation, that's the, the name that he has tattooed on his thigh, and you know? it's written on his robe when he returns in his glory. But here's the thing, often we don't look at Jesus as our king. Like I said, we, we have a hard time relating to Jesus as a, as a king. We don't like to give anybody that kind of authority in our lives. We, we'd rather have a much simple understanding of who Jesus is. But my hope and my prayer is that as we meditate on this passage, that we, we wouldn't just look at Jesus as our Savior. Okay, it's good. I mean, we should. It, it's okay. It, I mean, if you, if you look at Jesus as your Savior, it, I mean, you should appreciate the cross. You should appreciate His blood. It should be precious to you. But if it doesn't cause, if that thankfulness of Him saving you doesn't cause you also to bow down to him and submit everything to him. If it doesn't lead you to surrender all of your life to him, you haven't fully grasped who Jesus is and why he came. You see, when we have a simple understanding of who Jesus is, it's kind of like drinking like watered-down coffee or or like watered-down hot chocolate if you're not a, a coffee drinker, right? I mean, it's okay if you put enough creamer in it, it, uh, it it's drinkable, but it doesn't compare to a high-quality coffee that's been, been made right. The, the richness of it, the, the fullness of the, the taste. If you want to, to really enjoy Christ you got to know him fully. And, and the more you get to know Christ, it, it's like the, the, the flavor becomes more enjoyable. It, it, the, the more strokes you put on that portrait, the better understanding you have, the more you're going to enjoy him, and the easier it is for you. It, in fact, it just becomes natural for you to obey him. In, in fact, it becomes a, a radical submission to him. Because you recognize who he is, not just your savior, but a king. Another thing we often do is we look at him too simply. We, we simply look at him as a consultant. And it's good. We should go to God for wisdom, right? God commands us to do that. We should look for him for wisdom. But do you know the difference between a consultant and a king? A consultant is somebody that you go and you, usually you hire a consultant to come in to, take, to observe a situation and observe a problem and then at the end of it, they, they come back to you with a list of suggestions, a list of recommendations. And you have the choice whether or not you're going to follow those recommendations. That's what a consultant is. God, Jesus does not want to be your consultant. He wants to be your king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He does not want to take on a role of a consultant. See, the better we understand who Jesus is, the better we understand our role also. And I want to take a look back at this passage in, in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, and I want you to look at how 
David responds. After he hears this promise, look at how many times from verse 18 to the end of the chapter, see if you can count how many times he calls God Lord and how many times he refers to himself as a servant. As I read this, so you can get the count. Verse 18, then King David went in and he sat before the Lord and he says, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also to your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is the instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its God, gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Did you get the count? David, he uh, refers to God as Lord at least 11 times, and he refers to himself as a servant at least 10 times in that passage. You see, David's whole identity was wrapped not in himself being a king, not in himself as being even a, a shepherd, but his identity was wrapped in being a servant of his Lord. And when we think of a servant, unfortunately, we often think of somebody as a slave. We think of a servant as somebody who has been forced into service. We think of a, of, of a servant as somebody who is working their tail off because they fear their master's wrath. But that is not what I see in this passage. That is not how I feel David looks at himself. David saw himself as a servant of the king, and that was a huge blessing to him. 
It was a, it was a blessing to be able to be obedient to God. His, his response here in this passage is, is, why me? I mean, I'm a nobody, God. I was, the, I was the least of my brothers. I was a shepherd boy. And you plucked me out of nowhere to be a king that would have an, a throne that would last forever. Why me? Why us? Why this people? We're a nobody. Do you ever, do you ever think like that? Do you ever read scripture and Think about what Christ has done for you and say, why would you die on the cross for me? Why would you, why would you choose to reveal yourself to me? Why would you open up my eyes to understand that, that I need you as a Savior? Why, why me? Why? I mean, that should be our heart because we've brought nothing to the table. And that's how David looked at his life in this moment. He's like, why? Why me, Lord? Why have you chosen me? And that caused him to want to be a servant. That caused him to say, for what you've done for me, there isn't anything that I won't do for you, Lord. And that's the same picture that I see in the New Testament. When when I see service, what, what God is calling to us, as being a, his servant. That's what I see in the New Testament. I mean, think about the story of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and, and he, he asks Jesus, how can I inherit eternal life? In other words, how can I be saved? He's looking for a savior and Jesus, how does he respond? He says, look, you go and you sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And so Jesus was looking to be not just this man's savior, but to be his, his king, Right? He said, but, but the, the, the rich young ruler, where was his identity? It was being, in a, being rich, young, and a ruler. That, his whole identity was wrapped up in those three words, and so he walks away sad because he had so much. But Jesus was saying, look, your identity, you need to look at yourself totally different. You need to look at yourself not as a, not as a mom, not as a dad, not as a teacher, not as a... Uh, not, not as a somebody who, who, who works on computers. You're a servant of the king, and that's a joyful thing. That's something you should celebrate. That's what our identity should be wrapped up in. Jesus said it this way. He says, look, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. I mean, that's the picture of joyful, radical obedience that he is calling us to. And I don't, I don't think he's calling every single one of us to go and sell everything that we have and give it to the poor. But I do think he is calling us to a, a sacrificial, joyful obedience that says, look, after what I see you've done for me, there isn't anything that I wouldn't give you in return. It's not that you're looking to impress God. He's not looking to be impressed. There's nothing you're going to do that's going to impress him. It's not that you're looking to manipulate him into a blessing. He's already given you the blessing. And we're to respond in joyful submission and joyful obedience. And so let me close by just asking some probing questions to you. First of all, how do you view yourself? Where's your identity? What is it wrapped up in? 
Do you look at yourself as a servant of the king? And do you get excited about that? Do you get excited about serving King Jesus? That's something that, does that wake you up in the morning? Secondly, how do you view Jesus? Is he simply your savior that doesn't really require anything from you? Is he, is he just a consultant that you go to to look for advice? I know for me growing up, often I looked at Jesus as kind of like a genie in a lamp that I, I, went for him, I went to him with wishes. Like, what can you give me? How do you view Jesus though? Because how you view him is also going to determine how you value him. And you always determine how much you value something by what you're willing to give up for it. And so how much do you value Jesus? What does joyful, radical obedience look like for you? Maybe today what that looks like for you is just simply taking a moment and repent and saying, look, God, I I have not viewed you as a king. I have not viewed myself as as a servant. Maybe that's step number one in joyful, radical obedience for you. Or maybe for you, step number one is just setting your alarm a few minutes early in the morning so that you would wake up and spend time intentionally in God's Word, learning more about your Savior. And as you grow in in knowledge, you're going to grow in trust. And as you trust in the promises of God, you're going to grow in in joy and you're going to grow in obedience My prayer is that today as you leave, you're going to be asking that question. What steps do I need to take in joyful, radical obedience? And my prayer, my hope is that that would lead this church family to do some pretty radical things. Maybe it's that we start sending people to Scotland to be missionaries. Or maybe for you, it's just a baby step and walking across to your neighbors and and talking to them. Maybe it's for you, it's, it, it's inviting people to Christmas Eve service. Whatever that is, I pray that God would press on your heart. Jesus the King has already come once, and he will come again. The first time he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, the next time he's going to come riding a white war horse. And so we live in this middle period it's a period of amnesty where God offers forgiveness to those who fully trust in Him as Savior and treasure Him as their King. And He calls you as a believer to a significant role in establishing His kingdom. Just like He called David to a, a significant role, He's called the church to a significant role to be His witnesses to the ends of the earth that his kingdom has come and the king will return. And so let's pray that God would help us in that mission and that he would move in our hearts to make him our king. Father, you have given us more grace than we deserve. And I pray that as we move into a time of reflection and communion that you would help us to, one, reflect on how we have viewed you and we would repent of uh, a simple understanding and that we would embrace you as king, that we would embrace 
our own identity as servants and that it would move us to joyful and radical obedience. Give us a a greater desire to know you, that we would trust you more and submit to you fully. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we celebrate Advent, like I said, as a way to not just remember God's faithfulness and to anticipate the birthday of Jesus, but also to anticipate his return. And so as we partake in communion, I would encourage you to, one, like I talked about, to spend a moment in in repentance, but also, again, spend time reflecting on God's faithfulness to keep his promises and also to look forward to him keeping the promise that he will come back. So this is also a time for us to, in communion, we, we are reminded of God's or Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And so the bread represents his body, the juice represents his blood. And if you're a believer, we'd encourage you to, to join us in the celebration. There's a station back there. There's also stations up front. So as God leads you, join us in the celebration. This is also a time to give sacrificially. If you're a visitor, don't feel obligated. If you've got a, a need for prayer, uh, I'll be in the back. If you've got questions about salvation, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, if you don't trust Him for that or treasure Him as your King, I would encourage you to come talk to me if you've got questions about that or if you've got questions about baptism or, or membership. Don't leave today until you talk to somebody you trust. But you come as God is calling you to respond. And after everybody's gone through the line, we're going we're gonna to stay and we're going to worship together and we're going to sing about this Jesus that is our King. You come as God is calling you.